The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus entered the temple area and proceeded to drive out those who were selling things, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And every day he was teaching in the temple area. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people, meanwhile, were seeking to put him to death but they could find no way to accomplish their purpose because all the people were hanging on his words. The Gospel of the Lord. We have a curious scene before us in our first reading. This brief and odd encounter that the Apostle John has as he is experiencing a revelation of some kind. And in hearing the heavenly voice calling him forward and instructing him to take a scroll, a small scroll, the scriptures are very clear about that, a small scroll. And normally when, you, when somebody puts a book in your hand, do you start chewing on the pages? And so note the instruction, take the scroll and eat it. And right away we say, but that's not what you do with a scroll. Take the scroll and eat it. And to encourage him to do so, what a wonderful statement to say. And it'll be really sweet in your mouth. You're going to love how it tastes, but your stomach is going to hate it. But go ahead and eat it. And... He does, and it tastes wonderful in his mouth, and it unsettles his stomach. And in that combination of experiences, the pleasant taste lingering in the mouth and the bitterness stirring the stomach in all kinds of odd ways, he's told, now go and prophesy. And what an interesting command that is to speak out of the bitterness you're feeling in your stomach by means of the sweetness that you have in your mouth. And in giving us this odd moment, it's helpful to recall that there are other occasions in Scripture where something like this happens, where a word is presented and the word has to be devoured. It must be consumed. And in consuming, there is a certain sweetness in the mouth and an unsettledness in the stomach. And so on the one hand, this is very much in continuity with the people of God's long-going experience of the word, especially the experience of prophets with the word. So we pause on that because we hear these words today in the light of the fact that this coming Sunday we celebrate the feast of Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. And there can be no loyalty 
to a king without obedience to the words of a king. And so it is good that we have this moment of reflection on what it is to receive the word. And as one attends to reading the scriptures carefully, there's a remarkable insistence that one receives a word by doing something more than hearing. And if we pause, we know the truth of that because can you even count how many things you've forgotten over the course of your life? Can you even clearly remember everything that was said to you yesterday or even this morning? How many conversations have we had with one another where the words were many but forgotten shortly after the conversation ended? It happens with amazing regularity. How many things have we read and can no longer recall? Receiving a word requires more than the use of the ear. It requires making a decision to retain, to take into ourselves what we have heard and what we have read. And the privileged image of this in the scriptures is to consume the word, to feed on the word, even to feast on the word. And so we have in our responsorial psalm that marvelous expression, your words are sweeter in my mouth than honey. In order to speak the word well, one must taste it. In order to speak the word well, one must let it settle in all of its fullness not merely its consoling fullness, but also its disturbing fullness within us. So that when the prophet speaks, he's not merely repeating something that he's heard, but something that now rests within him. He speaks out of what he has received. This is why during Mass we do certain things in the part of the Mass that we refer to as the Liturgy of the Word. The Liturgy of the Word begins after the Collect, the opening prayer, and what do we do? We sit. We sit so that we can listen undisturbed. Only one person speaks, and it's not the priest, it's the lector. That was your job today, Carol. But note, but what is she speaking? Not her word but a word that has been given to us. And in speaking that word so that we can hear it and understand it, our job is not simply to sit passively and listen because it might be interesting. It's to recognize that the Lord has a word for us. And it's the same word for all of us, not merely a special word for me and a special word for you. And while each of us will engage that speaking differently, it's a common word. Note how marvelous that is. The Lord is speaking and he never speaks merely privately to me and merely privately to you. 
But here as we gather together, however deeply personal my encounter with the words of Scripture may be, it is an encounter with the same word that everybody else encounters. We respond to that word that we've heard by means of the responsorial psalm, which again is not called the responsorial psalm because we respond repeating a verse. The repeating of the verse is optional. It doesn't have to happen. It's called the responsorial psalm because it is chosen by the church as a response to the first reading. And that is what we are responding to. And note in the liturgy then, there's an insistence, we must respond to what we have heard. That's the point of the responsorial psalm. We, in fact, are responding to the reading, to the speaking that we have just listened to. And so our listening must necessarily involve our responding. It doesn't involve our reacting, which is a knee-jerk reflex. It involves responding, which means it is coming from a deeper part of us than a mere superficial response. Note how marvelous that is. That simple pattern, every Mass, the Word is proclaimed, and those who have heard the Word need to respond. And we respond together. And admittedly, we don't always understand the first reading very well, but note whether we understand it well or not, we still try to respond. Then after we have responded to the reading, we do something, something new. And we realize that what we have heard and what we have responded to, how we have responded, prepares us to meet someone. So having responded to the word that begins to open our hearts, we then stand. And we stand because someone is about to be present in a more substantial way. We stand at attention. And every time we proclaim the gospel at Mass, the posture is standing. And so we stand because we recognize we are going to be in the presence of someone who has a fuller word for us. We stand to greet the King. And as the congregation stands, the priest or the deacon who is going to proclaim the gospel goes to the altar and bows low before the altar and prepares himself. Well, the deacon goes to the priest and bows low and asks for a blessing, but the words of the preparation and the blessing are effectively the same. So when I was in front of the altar and I bowed low, I prayed, I asked the Lord to cleanse my heart and my lips that I might proclaim his gospel, not mine, worthily and well. And note then, even in that moment, the sense that the words that are about to be announced have a weight about them, a dignity about them and a dignity that must call forth something better from the minister who is tasked with announcing them. 
with proclaiming them. Cleanse my heart and cleanse my lips that I proclaim not your word with an unclean heart or unclean lips, because that would be an unworthy proclamation. What a marvelous notion that is. And we greet, we prepare ourselves for the gospel by the chanting of the Alleluia, which is how we greet the arrival of the Lord who is going to speak. When the gospel is pronounced, during the Mass, that is the high point of the Liturgy of the Word. An ordained minister must proclaim it because it is Christ who is speaking to the congregation at that moment. And so the words we just heard in our Gospel are not merely a recollection of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Rather, and our standing signals it, it's our recognition that this is Jesus speaking to us today and that this is a living reality announced in our presence today. It is not a mere historical memory. But before we can do it, before we can hear those words, before Jesus addresses himself to you, before I speak his word to you, we all have to do something. Note how complicated this is. And it happens so quickly in most places, doesn't it? We miss most of this. We go on autopilot. We take our hands after the greeting. The gospel is announced, but before we read it, we sign ourselves on the forehead. We sign ourselves on the lips. We sign ourselves on the heart. Not just the priest, we all do. Before you can receive the word, you have to do something. Before I can announce the word, I likewise have to do something. And we ask the Lord in doing that by the power of his cross to open our minds, not just to understand, but to retain the word, to open our lips so that we might savor the sweetness of the word and when we share our faith, have something of that sweetness in how we do it. And most importantly, we ask the Lord to open our hearts where that word must remain and dwell and where that word could well change us and challenge us that we might receive it. Only then... Only then do we listen. And a word of advice. When you're at Mass, a good Catholic survival skill, it doesn't matter how much of a hurry everyone around you is in. Make it a habit to pause and do that gesture well. And you will be amazed at how well, over time, it can open you to receive the power of the gospel. It's not in the liturgy by accident, but sometimes we do things automatically without understanding, without thinking, and so we rob ourselves of the opportunity to experience their power. 
Well, once the proclamation is finished, there's one more gesture that remains. And the one who has announced the words of the gospel concludes the proclamation by kissing those words. How many books do you kiss? But every time we celebrate Mass, the words of the gospel are kissed by the one who proclaims them. Whether the word is bitter or whether the word is sweet, whether the word is attractive or whether the word is off-putting, it's kissed. And the kiss is done on behalf of the entire congregation. And as the priest kisses the words, he says, may the words of the gospel wipe away our, not my, our sins. May they be effective in purifying our lives. And so note that the proclamation concludes with that prayer to be purified by the words of the gospel, and only then does the homily, that often lengthy period of being tortured by the presider, which is happening now, uh, only then does that happen. But notice how this builds on the imagery we have in our readings today, that one must attend to how one receives the word so that the word can be received well. And one of the things the church has long struggled with is there are many who are quick to proclaim, but they haven't taken the time to receive well. And so the proclamation is shallow or ineffective or empty. There are many who want to give testimony without having first done the work of letting the, the word of God witness to the truth within me and the truth about me in terms of what I'm doing well, but also in terms of what needs to change. And when that happens, the proclamation becomes shallow and empty. It's why the memorial that we celebrate today has no small significance. This memorial of the founding of the churches, the dedicating of the churches in Rome to Saints Peter and Saint Paul. We don't celebrate the dedication of the buildings that exist today. These are, there are different buildings in Rome now. The original churches were built at the order of Emperor Constantine himself. And he insisted that those churches be built at the spots where both of those men gave their lives for the gospel and where their mortal remains were laid to rest. That's why St. Peter's Basilica is where it is. That was where St. Peter was laid to rest. In St. Paul's, that is where his remains were placed, and so those locations were honored with these churches. But why? Because these were the two great ministers of the word in the life of the church. Peter entrusted with the powerful authority of the gospel who guided and led the church to proper understanding and living of the faith. And Paul, that one who went forth to bring the light of the word into the darkness of the nations. And so the apostles who are sent are sent to proclaim the word that they first had to receive, that they first had to know. And it is through their proclamation that the church comes not merely to Rome, but that goes out into the world. 
And so in celebrating these churches, we're also celebrating that apostolic impulse by which the Lord grows his church, by which the word reaches the nations and gathers them. But if the nations are to be gathered, there must be a place within which they gather. Hence the importance of churches. The people of God must come together, and we can't come together in the abstract. And as we found over the pandemic, Zoom meetings only get you so far. There is a need to come together. This is what is at issue with the word that we have about Jesus in our gospel today. It's not enough just to show up. The quality of our gathering matters. It matters in terms of how well we attend to and care for the places in which we gather. And it matters even more with regard to how well we attend to the spirit within which we are gathering. And so this incident in the temple that we have today, which takes place toward the end of Jesus' earthly life, Finally arriving at Jerusalem, the first thing he does is he visits the temple. And the first thing he does in his visit is he kicks the money changers out. And note how decisive, how bold, and how angry the Lord is as he does this. Because it cuts against the grain of that tendency to reduce Jesus to merely a pleasant guy. He shows up, and he has a clear standard of what he expects. He is both a faithful believer, and he is also the God who is to be believed. And so he has a double response to what he sees in the temple. As one of Israel, he is frustrated at what it has become. But as the God of Israel, he is likewise frustrated at what worship has been reduced to how easily worship gets pushed aside for the sake of other things, other priorities. There's a certain practicality. If people need to sacrifice animals, they need to bring money, they need to buy them. And so there are reasons why all of this took place, but what happens then is the mere practicality begins replacing the dignity and the character and the quality of worship. It's something we all struggle with. And so again, Jesus goes to the place because prayer must have a place in life. If there is no place for prayer in my living, I don't have a right to describe myself as spiritual by any stretch of the imagination. Prayer must be present. But it must be present not merely privately, there must be a place for us, for the people, to pray. Which means the people must likewise have a place physically to come together, but place in terms of their priorities. And it's here the Lord goes to the physical place and he sees that the priority of prayer is absent. The place is used for other things too. And these other things quickly become more important than what should be happening in the place, than the reason the place is there to begin with. 
Consider how, as a culture, we've stopped setting Sunday aside for faith and for prayer because there are so many other things that are important. So this is not merely a matter of the Lord going to the temple because there things were badly done. It's the Lord also saying to us, attend to how you gather. Attend to the place of prayer in your life, individually, collectively, nationally, socially. And what has happened to it? What, are the, what is the coin that is being counted in the place of prayer? It may not be physical coin. It may be the coin of convenience. It may be the coin of I'm too busy. It may be the coin of all my kids have activities on Sunday. It may be the coin of I'm just too tired to move. And the Lord is saying, and, well, what are we going to do about that? Do we allow the money changer to clutter the space with his tables and then limit our movement? Or do we make the perhaps dramatic action to say something has to be different? And here then we have the Lord boldly coming in, he who is himself the living very word of God made flesh. And so he speaks to the world, and he speaks to his people in this gesture. And on the one hand, we say, Lord, your words are sweeter than honey. But as he's overturning those money-changing tables, we also see, oh, but it's not sitting well in my stomach. It's not sitting well because you're upsetting me. You're turning something over in me. You're turning something over in us. But the Lord doesn't do that because he likes to upset us. The Lord does that so that we might have life in its fullness. Note how important then this issue of being careful about how we respond and how we receive to the word really is. And we do all of that in the first part of the mass using the ancient language of the church. We come together for mass and first we feast at the table of the word. We consume the word. We feast on it. We are fed by the word. Take the scroll and eat it. And having feasted at the table of the word, we are now made ready to come forward to the table of his body and his blood, the table of his person. Those who learn well how to feast on the banquet of his word are those who are most ready to stretch out their hands to the greater and saving banquet of his body, his blood, his very person in the Holy Eucharist. This is also why the question comes up, so I may as well answer it here. Father, how late can I come and still say I've attended Mass? You'd be surprised. No, you wouldn't be surprised how often I get that. <laughs> um, the answer, quite frankly and quite basically, is this. Assuming that you're not traveling, okay? Because like, things happen on the road which can slow you down, and that's not your fault. But assuming all things being equal, if you've missed the gospel, you've missed Mass. Note how important that is. 
in order to come to the table well, we have to allow him first to lead us to that table by means of the word of his gospel. We feast twice, once from the table of the word, and that is what brings us to the table, the banquet of his presence, the table of the Lord. With it, all of us feast truly well this day. Amen.